My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Bible Church. So glad to have you with us this morning and kicking off this new year together. Uh, I'm really excited about this. Uh, excited about this sermon, excited about what God is doing in our midst as a covenant family here. We're going to start a series this morning called The Covenant Community. And Jay spoke briefly, kind of gave a very brief intro to this next three-month series. Uh, at the end of last year, we did three weeks or three to five weeks on those three loves that we see on the wall over there. We love God together. We love our church family together. We love our neighbor together. Those are core practices here at Providence and a very good definition of what it means to be a part of our family. If you're a part of our family, this is what we do together. We love God together. We love one another together, and we love our neighbors together. And one of the weeks um, in that five-week series, Jay spoke about these three circles of engagement here at Providence. And in this outer circle of engagement, we have the congregation at large. These are, a, you are attendees. If you are in this category, you've, you might call Providence your home. You might not. You might be visiting. This may be your second or third week, and uh, you heard about us. You're, you're exploring who we are. Maybe you've been in that circle for a long time, and you would consider Providence your home church, and you come on Sundays, but that's about the extent of your engagement with us. And if that's you, you are welcome to be here, and we're thrilled that you're here. Another level, another layer deeper of deeper engagement with Providence uh, would be a committed participant. This is somebody who started out here in that outer circle of the congregation and then has started plugging in in various avenues. Maybe you volunteer cross-purpose. Maybe you volunteer here uh, on a Sunday service team uh, as a greeter or help with parking or children's ministry or any number of things, but you are regularly coming to Providence and you are engaged in some sort of level of service. And then in the innermost ring or the deepest level of engagement at Providence, that would be our covenant partners. A lot of churches refer to this level of engagement as church membership. And so this is the group of people within Providence who are responsible for voting on things within Providence and selecting leaders and voting new members in, new covenant partners in to uh, Providence Bible Church. This is our deepest level of engagement. And over these next nine weeks, we want to just explore with you or explain to you what it means to be in that circle of engagement, of covenant partnership with Providence. And we don't want, over these nine weeks, to try to manipulate you, no matter what circle you're in, into that circle. We're not here to try to twist your arm to be a covenant partner of Providence, but we do want to invite you into that circle. Uh, we want to lay sort of a table before you and say, come and join us here. This is a great place to be. This is a great family to be a part of. So we want to invite and encourage, not manipulate or pressure or take a stick and beat people into submission. <laughs> we just want to invite you into something that's beautiful and truly transformative, a transformative way of living <clears throat> and so we're going to explore that together over these next few weeks. And today is just an introduction to that series. And our text this morning is relatively brief. In fact, it's a little briefer even than Cynthia read. I gave her verses 62 to 63, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time on verse 63. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. Now, I come from a church tradition 
that could take that verse, take one verse, and just run wild with it. Like, what do the camels mean? And where are the camels in your life? I'm not going to do that this morning. I promise. That's not what I'm doing this morning. But this little verse jumped out at me recently, about a month ago, as I was meditating on a read-through Genesis. It just jumped off the page. And I spent hours afterwards just meditating on this, and hopefully this morning I'll be able to unpack that in a way that makes sense and resonates with your hearts. And I trust the Spirit of God for that. And to that end, I'm going to pray and ask him to move. Father, this morning I just pray that you would speak through your word to your people, as you always are faithful to do. Um, I pray that you would encourage us where we need encouragement Strengthen us where we need strengthening. Heal us. Heal our hearts where they need to be healed. God, I just pray you'd take your word and minister this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God's primary work in this world, according to this story, God's primary work, both now, right now, and throughout all of human history, is blessing his world by creating, sustaining, and multiplying a family. That's his primary work. That is the most important thing that is happening in our world today. Regardless of what CNN might have you believe or Fox News might have you believe, regardless of what your friends might be talking about at work, regardless of all of that stuff, the most important thing that is happening in your existence right now and has been happening from the beginning of time, is that God is actively at work blessing the world by creating, sustaining, and multiplying a family. That's his primary work. Now, if that's true, and I'm a volunteer pastor because I believe that's true, I'm giving my life to that reality. I am trying to live in alignment with that reality. I would hope that if you looked at my life, you would see a life that is being lived out as though that were true, because I believe it with all of my heart. If it's true, then the most important question for everyone to ask is, am I in the family of God? Am I a part of what God is doing? Am I a part of this family? Not... Am I a Christian? How many of you are fans of Westerns? Any Western fans? Okay, I like Westerns. And Westerns are just a mythology of America. Most of them aren't true stories. (laughs) Most of them are exaggerated myths. But I enjoy them. I enjoy a good Western. And a lot of Westerns are very similar. And they, they focus on a character. We'll just call him Pa. Pa is minding his own business. He's got his plot of land and his house that he built with his own two hands out of wood. And he's got some horses probably, might have some cattle, and he's got one or two kids, maybe a wife, but maybe his wife died of cholera. We don't know. But Pa is just minding his own business. And he probably lives a day's journey or so outside of the town, But the movie doesn't focus so much on the town. It focuses on Pa being a faithful American, pulling his family up by their bootstraps, supplying for his family, working. He works so hard 
day in and day out. We don't know what all he does, but he's taking care of things and fixing things. And he comes in at night and he's exhausted. Sometimes he's a good dad to his kids. Other times he's really mean to his kids. But he's a strong cowboy dad. This is Pa. And at some point in the story, a villain, a bad guy, will steal a cow or a horse from Pa. And now Pa has to defend what's rightfully his, right? And so he might shoot the villain, but he rarely kills him in the first act. The villain's at least wounded, rides off, and now we know there's going to be trouble. Why is there going to be trouble? Because of this wounded villain. Any thoughts? Why is there going to be? Why do we know there's going to be trouble? What's this guy going to go do? He's going to get his friends. Unlike Pa, he has community. <laughs> the bad guy has community. If Pa is lucky, he might be able to go round up a community of strangers called a posse and go chase him. But this guy's got community. It's generally called the Smithers Gang or something like that, right? And so the Smithers Gang is going to come for Pa. And of course, because Pa is a good American, he's going to kill them all, more than likely. And if it's like one that I just recently watched, he kills them all, and then his one true friend kills him. <laughs> his supposed community kills him. And the moral of the story is, you're on your own. You're on your own. Get what's yours. Take care of your own. You're on your own. And community is, <laughs> at best, something the bad people do. <laughs> a community gives them an unfair advantage. You're on your own. And if you're a good American, you should be able to fend for yourself and take care of your family and take care of your land. And that's largely the American dream. That has become the American mythology. That is the American dream. You go off, you leave your family, and you create your own life, and you build your own life, maybe with a family, but you are responsible then to provide for your family and take care for your family. You mind your own business. You don't worry about what everybody else is doing. And as long as the government doesn't try to interfere with your life, you're doing it right. That's it. That's the American version. Because of this, because of how this has crept into the church, the most important question for American Christians to answer over the past century has been, are you a Christian? That's why that is the fundamental question for you, because you're on your own. The most important question for you to answer is, if you're on your own, are you a Christian? Are you going to make it out of this thing alive? Are you going to heaven? If you, by yourself, were to die today, would you go to heaven when you die? That has been launched out into American evangelicalism as the most critical question for you to answer. But the Bible doesn't present that as the most critical question for you to answer. It actually presents it as a fruit of a larger question. Are you in the family of God? Are you part of the covenant family of God? And if you are, then of course you're going to make it out of this thing alive. We've got your back. We're all in this with you. And Jerome, we have a good father, a papa in heaven looking out for us. So the number one question for you is not, are you by yourself a Christian? Did you by yourself at one point in your life pray a prayer and make verbal assent to the kingship of Jesus in your life? That's not the most important question. 
The most important question that you should be asking yourself and that scripture will ask you to evaluate is, are you an active participating member in the covenant family of God? Are you or are you not one of the children of the promise? That's the question. And if you are, everything else is going to work out. Even if it doesn't seem like it right now, it's going to work out. Does that make sense? So we're going to look at this, and I think the best place to see this is where this all started, or at least close to where this all started. It didn't all start in Genesis 24. But I think this is a good place for us to start, to just look at this. And if by the end of this, you agree with me, great. Maybe you don't agree with me, great. But this is what we're unpacking for the next nine weeks, is that fundamental question. We want you to evaluate yourself, your life, in light of the covenant family of God. As you look at your life, is your life engaged with the covenant family of God? And so the title of this series is The Covenant Community. And this week, we're just going to talk about a better family. That's all we're looking at today, a better family. And as and Isaac went out to meditate in the field, Verse 63 of chapter 24, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. Now, in order for us to see what's going on here and understand this, uh, we need to look at verse 62, and we need to know what's going on in chapter 24 and chapter 23 and all of the rest of it. And so I'm going to give sort of an overview here and uh, try not to make too many assumptions of, I don't, I don't know how much Bible background you have. I was raised in a Christian family, and so a lot of these stories are familiar to me, and I'm going to try not to assume that level of familiarity. But I think the first question that we should ask is just, who is Isaac? Who is Isaac? It would be good for us to have an understanding of who this guy is, if we're going to understand why this verse is so important. Isaac is the son of promise. That's who Isaac is. Isaac is the promised one. Isaac is a significant person in the story of God. Isaac is the first step in delivering on this outlandish covenant or promise or deal that God made with Isaac's father, Abraham. Chapters and chapters before this, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to leave what's familiar to you, leave your family, and I just want you to follow me off into the wilderness. You follow me, I will be your God, I will provide for you, and if you will do this, I will make a great nation out of you, and through this great nation that I make out of you, all of the other nations in the world will be blessed. I promise this is going to happen. At this point, Abraham has no children. So throughout Abraham's life, he's getting older, and he's starting to doubt this promise. God promised him offspring. In fact, God, God got pretty specific. He brought Abraham out into a field at night, and he said, look up at the, at the sky. Your children will outnumber the stars. Your offspring will outnumber the stars. They will outnumber the sand on the seashore. And Abraham hits 60 and 70 and 80, and he begins to doubt just like the rest of us would that he's going to deliver, that God is going to deliver on this promise. This promise hinges on Abraham having a son. If Abraham doesn't have a son to carry on the family name, the promise doesn't matter. It's not going to happen. So in this decades-long relationship between Abraham and his God, 
Everything is hinging on God delivering on this promise. Is God a covenant keeper or is God a liar? Which is he? It all hinges on this. And so at some point, just like the rest of us, Abraham decides to take matters into his own hands and have a child outside of his marriage. And God says to Abraham, that's not how I'm going to do this. I'm sorry, that's not it. You are going to have a child. And Abraham's like, my wife and I are as good as dead. <laughs> We're a hundred. We don't, we don't have kids at a hundred. And God says, no, I, I am going to be faithful to this covenant. I'm going to give you a son. And sure enough, Isaac comes along. Isaac is born, and almost immediately after Isaac is born, God threatens to take him away. In chapter 21 of Genesis, we have Isaac being born. Sarah conceived right in the beginning of chapter 21 and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, which means laughter because they laughed at the idea that they would have a son in their old age. But sure enough, just as God said, it happened. That's chapter 21. Chapter 22, God says, okay, I want you to kill him. That's the next thing that God does in Abraham's life. In this journey with this covenant-keeping God, God finally delivers this promise in the form of Isaac. Isaac is the hope of the world at this point in Abraham's view. And now God says, I want you to take him and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham doesn't object or argue. At least from what we can see in the text, he doesn't argue. He says, okay. Which is indicative of Abraham's entire relationship with God. From the get-go, Abraham doesn't assume God's a liar. Abraham assumes God is a covenant keeper. From the beginning, in fact, that's what Scripture will later say is attributed to him as faith. And if we believe the same, that God is a covenant keeper, we are children of Abraham because we believe this. So this is just Abraham's operating understanding of who God is. I'm going to follow him to the ends of the earth. Whatever he asks, I'm going to do it. And so Abraham says, okay, I'll do this. And so he goes, he walks Isaac up. We don't know how, I don't remember if the text tells us how old Isaac is, but he's old enough to be self-aware because he looks around as they're going up to the mountain to do this sacrifice. And he looks around and he says, there is no lamb for us to offer. Where is the sacrifice? It's a smart kid. <laughs> and Abraham says, don't worry about it. God will provide a lamb. God will provide a sacrifice, Isaac. Don't worry about it. Gets all the way up to the altar, lashes Isaac down, ties him down to the altar so that he can't move, and gets ready to kill Isaac like a lamb. Gets ready to slaughter Isaac. And throughout this, we don't see Isaac objecting either. Okay, this is just what we do, I guess, in Abraham's family. And he gets right to the borderline, the threshold of killing his son, and the angel of the Lord comes in and intervenes and stops him and provides a ram that's caught over in a thorn bush and says, use that for the sacrifice, not your son. And so Abraham does it. And we're told that this was God's way of testing whether or not Abraham was going to love his son more than he loved God himself. We also know from the fuller picture of Scripture that this was a means of God pointing to a coming sacrifice but there's more on that later. So this is who Isaac is, and this is Isaac's experience of who God is. 
Now we get to chapter 24. In chapter 24, Abraham says, okay, we're going to continue this. This promise is going to happen. And if it's going to happen, Isaac, you got to have kids. And so I'm going to send my servant off to find you a wife in our home country. So Abraham calls his servant, sends his servant on a 900-mile journey back to their homeland to find a wife for Isaac, the promised one, so that there can be more offspring. 900 miles probably took him three or four months. This servant goes over this three- to four-month journey, finds this woman, and starts bringing her back on the three- to four-month journey. There's a lot in that story that's fascinating that we don't have time for, but I would encourage you to read chapter 24. It's a beautiful, romantic story. Bring, starts bringing her back, and that brings us right here, 24, verse 63. Isaac is in the field meditating. Now, Isaac at this time, we know from verse 62, Isaac is living in the wilderness, Wyoming. Isaac had returned and was dwelling in the Negeb. That's the wilderness. Now it's a desert. That region is a desert. Back then it could have been a desert. It could have been more forested than it is now. We're not really sure. But the Negeb is frequently mentioned in Scripture. In fact, this is the, one of the first times that we see God leading one of his children out into the Negeb to meet with them personally and to have this personal communion with them And they always come out of the Negeb fully charged with their relationship with God and ready to join him on the mission that he's doing. And you can see this in Moses. You can see this in Paul, actually, the Apostle Paul. You can see this in Jesus. You can see this all over the place. But here it is. He's he's away from the family. He's living in the wilderness, and he's going out into the field to meditate. So that's who Isaac is. Isaac is the promised one, and the promise still kind of from our standpoint, from our perspective, hinges on him. You following? It hinges on him. If he doesn't have kids, the promise is void. There is no nation that's going to bless all of the other nations and that's going to outnumber the stars in the sky if he doesn't have children. So this is a critical point in his life, and this is who he is. He is a son of promise. He is the son of Abraham. He's a member of Abraham's family. In fact, if you were to uh, have a conversation with Isaac, like we often do in our culture around his identity, one of the first things that he's going to mention is he is a child of Abraham. That's crucial to who he is. And Abraham's God is his God. That's crucial to who he is. So not just biologically, but also spiritually. My father's God is my God. And my father's worship is the way that I worship. We do this, we do this together. Isaac is the father of many nations, we know from the rest of the story, as God continues to deliver on his promise. So why is that important? Why is this verse important? Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. I don't want to mention time, but I don't have a timer going, and I have no idea what time I started. So how much time do I have? Anybody know? Got 10 minutes. Okay. No problem. What is he doing? What is Isaac doing in this verse? He is meditating. He's meditating. Now, if you just stop and think about that for a second, that's a little strange. At this, at this part of the story, you know why it's strange at this part of the, what is he meditating on? What's he meditating on? David talks about meditation. Daniel talks about meditation, but they had this 
You know, they had this, this to meditate on. What is he meditating on? This is actually huge. What he's doing is very significant because you don't just see it in his own individual life. This is, this is something that he's doing as an individual. Don't get me wrong. But if you look at the story, everybody in this community lives their life this way. They have incorporated Abraham's practice of meditation and communicating with God. Not just Abraham and not just Isaac. Everybody, presumably, is doing it this way. Earlier on, when Lot's or when Abraham's relative gets kidnapped, Abraham is able to rouse an army from the people of his household of 315 chosen men. When, I have, when I've read this story in the past, I've thought of Abraham's household as being, you know, 20 to 30 people. This is maybe 1,000, and some scholars would even say he's got 2,000 people, up to 2,000 people traveling with him as participants in this promise that God has made. There are at least hundreds, if not thousands, of people that are bound up eagerly anticipating the fulfillment of this promise and practicing Abraham's practices, including now, thousands of years later, us. If you have a practice of getting alone with God and reading your Bible and meditating, that comes from here. That comes from Genesis 24, where Isaac goes out into the field and meditates. This is a part of being in the family of God. Isaac is living as a member of the household of God. And the reason that I say this is not unique to Abraham and Isaac is because throughout the story, we see Abraham's servants crying out to this God. In this very chapter, the servant that Abraham sent to bring Isaac, his wife, calls out to the covenant promises of God and bases his prayer on God as a covenant-keeping God. He does this. He says, Earlier in 24, he's trying to choose this wife for Isaac. And Abraham has promised him that God will help him with this task. And he says in verse 12, this is the servant. Oh, Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. The people in this group, the people in this clan, in this large family, we're not in this in an individual sense. This was not the biggest thing to them. The biggest thing to them was not, how am I doing in my relationship with God? The biggest thing to them is, what is God doing with his family? Do you see that? This is so crucial that this practice carried down from generation to generation to generation. You see Moses meditating with God and speaking one-on-one -on -one with God. You see Fast forward to David writing an entire book of Psalms around his individual meditations with God, loving God and counting on God to keep his promises. Throughout all of these generations, they're pointing back to Abraham and Isaac and saying, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are the one that I'm praying to, you are the one I'm counting on, and you are the one that can deliver me. What Isaac is doing here in the field is participating in the covenant family of God. Do you see that? Why does it matter? Why does it matter? 
he is aligning himself and recentering himself on the promise of God to bless the world through his family. He had one thing to meditate on, the promise. That's what he had to meditate on. God is going to create a family through which he is going to bless all of the world, all of the nations of the earth. Isaac, at this point in his life, is 40 years old. He's heard the story now for 40 years that God is going to bless all of the nations of the earth and God is going to create a family that is so vast it outnumbers the stars, but he's not really yet seeing it happen in his own life. He's recentering himself and aligning himself. And he knows that his father has sent someone off to bring back a wife. And he knows chapter two is getting ready to open. And I love how the verse ends. He lifts up his field and behold, there were camels coming. And then it immediately jumps to the other perspective. His wife, Rebecca, coming. And it says, and Rebecca lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And they were married. And that's the beginning of chapter 2. So here, right before that happens, Isaac is meditating in the field, centering himself on the promises of God, reminding himself of what God is promising to do. And his regular practice results in blessings on his whole family. As the leaders of this household, as Abraham and now Isaac and others practice this way, live out this life, this entire community is blessed. We see it over and over and over again. They have their needs met, just as God promised, and then some. Their wealth multiplies. They're able to bless other neighboring cities. In fact, in chapter 26, uh, Isaac is now leading this family, and a neighboring king comes to him and says, we need you to get out because you're going to consume all of our resources and we can't sustain your family now. And then a few verses later, that same king comes back to him and he says, listen, actually, we can see that the spirit of the Lord is with you. And so come back and whatever you need, we'll give you. All the nations of the earth are starting to be blessed as this promise begins to unfold. And as this family begins to center their lives on this promise, this family is not centered on a place. They're moving. They're nomads right now. So this is not because they're from a certain place. This is not ethnic heritage yet. This is just, we're centered on a promise, and we're going to live our entire lives as though this promise is true. And everything starts happening for them. As the other neighboring nations watch, this is the place to be. This is the family that people want to be a part of. They want to see God work in their lives the way they see God work in this family. It's really similar to the movie Encanto, if you've seen that. I don't know if you have. If you haven't, you should. But Encanto is that picture. Encanto is a magical family endowed with what we could call spiritual gifts. And with those gifts, they bless an entire community around them, an entire watching world. They're actually in a living house, which Peter calls us. We are a living house. It's fascinating. But if you watch the movie, they don't, just, they don't just use their gifts on themselves, right? It also has a son who's pushed away in exile and rejected. And in order for the promise to be fulfilled, he's got to come back. But they don't just exhaust those gifts on themselves, their magical powers on themselves. They use them to bless the entire community. That's what's happening here. The entire community, the world around them, their immediate vicinity is blessed as they're being blessed. What is all of this pointing to? 
Because now we're thousands of years later, where does this start to meet us? There was another son of promise. His relationship to God was also intensely personal. We see Jesus at the start of his ministry going out into the wilderness, the Negeb, going out into the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days, just him by himself, not eating, not drinking, spending time alone, meditating. What is he meditating on? The promises of God. That's what he's meditating on. He's meditating on a fuller version of what Isaac was meditating on. Isaac's practice, this family practice, this family relationship, connection to God, carried all the way to Jesus himself. And Jesus came out of that experience of 40 days and faced temptation from Satan and was able to overcome it because of the promises of God. He quoted the promises of God from this section of the Bible. He was able to see himself as a covenant promised one, the son of promise. And he was able to see that through him, all of the nations of the earth were going to be blessed, but not through his lineage like Isaac. It was bigger than biology. Jesus didn't have any physical biological offspring, but through him, you and I were brought in. Those of us who were on the outside looking in and Without Jesus, we would have been on the outside looking in saying, I wish we could be a part of that, but we can't. Because of Jesus, now we can. Jesus, like Isaac, was led up to a hill to be sacrificed, only his father didn't withhold his hand. His father killed him. He was killed on the cross, crucified, and by his blood, the New Testament tells us, he bought us, he ransomed us, he brought us into the family. He adopted us into the family. And so now we are in this family. And we're going to spend the next eight weeks unpacking what all that means for us. What does that mean for us? What does it mean that uh, I am with you in a relationship with God, together with you? What does that mean for us? What does it mean that together we're to love one another and to be a family together? What does that mean? And what does it mean for those who are outside this family looking in? What does it mean? Throughout these next eight weeks, we're just going to ask you to do really one thing. We're just going to ask you to get with God, like Isaac did, and evaluate your life. Evaluate your life. We're not asking you to ask first and primarily, am I saved? Did I pray a prayer? We're going to ask you to evaluate, am I part of this story? I promise you, you want to be a part of this story. Am I part of this? Am I a part of the covenant family of God? Am I reorienting my life around this family? Is my family subordinate to a degree to this family? Am I bringing my family in and seeing us on a journey with this family of God? The best news out of all of this is we don't have to look at Isaac as a son of promise. John actually says, because of what Jesus did for you, you now, you are a son or a daughter of promise. That's you. That's your identity. You are a promised one here in the flesh, living in your community for the sake of this church, this body of believers, this family, and for these neighborhoods. You are a promised one. You are a child of God. You are actually something that Isaac, with a very limited view, was meditating on in the field. 
You are the fulfillment of a covenant-keeping God to Isaac. Your heritage now, Paul says in Galatians 3, Paul says, you now are a son or a daughter of Abraham. You are connected. Your heritage doesn't go back just as far as Ancestry.com tells you it does. Your heritage goes back to this story, this family. If you're in Christ, you are in this family. So we want you to consider that over these next several weeks, over these next few months. We want you to be continually considering this. And I don't know where you're at, but I really am praying for you. I am praying that you will consider wherever you're at, taking the next step toward the family if you're not yet in the family. And if you're in the family, I would, I'll be praying that you examine your life and question, are, am I aligned with this family? Am I participating with God in the most important work that he's doing in the world today? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would minister to us. I pray that you would lead us just as clearly and as vividly as you led our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them. God, I pray that we would be people who are compelled by the story to live a certain way. Father, I pray that you would keep our eyes on you as the covenant promise keeper. And I pray that you would lead us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.